0: Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine.
1: If this is your first time listening to the recovery matters podcast then welcome if you are a returning listener thank you and welcome back i'm sandy valentine a woman in long-term recovery from alcoholism i'm also a wife mother stepmother grandmother and a health promotion manager at the university of connecticut working with students in recovery i'm joined by my co-host and husband phil valentine so phil what are all your things
2: i have a lot of things but primarily I'm your husband first, that's what I'll always say. And my name is Phil Valentine. I'm the Executive Director of the Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery. I've been with this organization since 1999, and I established my recovery in 1987. So three decades plus, Um, I'm also a father, a son, a friend, a colleague, uh, a grandfather now. Oh my gosh. Um, Only because of recovery, because recovery's been very, very good to me. Did you say you were in recovery? I did. Did you? And how's your recovery going today?
1: My recovery's going really well because of people like our guest today who has a lot of those roles we just described too. Welcome, Michael.
3: Thank you. Uh, it's great to be on the podcast. My name is Michael Askew. Um, I'm Director of Recovery Advocacy for CCAR, Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery. And uh, like Phil, I've been in the uh, organization for almost 18 years. Uh, really uh, a person in long-term recovery, and that means that I, I, I have a great life after using drugs for th- 21 years. And uh, at 34, I found recovery, and, and it was in prison. Yeah, yeah tell
2: us about that what was it like and Whoa. what happened <laughs> are, well, are you going to tell the story
3: well you know my, yeah, Well, I can tell you that uh, story of uh, how I got there uh, but it was a vicious cycle I, I was arrested 11 times I convicted 9 did 7 prison bids and you know the last one you know it was the same old motto you know catch me if you can so they did <laughs> they caught me quite a few times <laughs> But, you know, I, I, I never got the formal treatment. You know, I, I, I noticed from time to time people were going up to the hospital and coming back looking better, but coming back into the madness. And I'm like, well, that's wasting valuable get-high time to me. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> valuable get-high time?
3: Yeah, Why? 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 Was,
2: wasn't there one time you were facing a bid or treatment, and what did you do?
3: Yeah, well, that, I'm glad you asked because... Uh, <laughs> That's how distorted our thinking gets, in, in, in the midst of this chaos and madness, I, um, I was, uh, I was being arraigned and, and went back to court, and the judge, uh, they based it on the fact that I was a uh, substance use, uh, uh, I had substance use disorder, so they they actually felt the need to place me in treatment, so they gave me the option of going to a residential treatment for eighteen months or do two and a half years uh, in prison. (laughs) (laughs) So at the time, uh, they had this program called Supervised Home Release, which allowed an individual to do uh, one-tenth of their sentence. So being the great mathematician (laughs) I was, (laughs) I figured that's about four and a half months. So I told him, I'll take the two and a half years uh, and I get out in four months instead of doing 18 months in a, a residential program. So that, that that's that's the kind of way my story goes from time to time. I just made some, you know, uh, impulse decisions based on the fact that uh, it would be my best advantage to do the worst thing that was possible <laughs> just to get out of the madness I was in. Uh, so, you know, that that's but, – but one of the things I'd like to share about those uh, prison uh, – Moments were. Every time I went, I always felt that I could uh, avoid going back. But you know, the the disease is so cunning and and, and powerful that, in my best efforts without support, um, I would always make the wrong decision at the wrong time. Hmm. And uh, you know, one of the guys in prison, he said, "Mike, every time you use, you didn't go to prison." But every time you went to prison, you were using, right? <laughs> I'm like, get out of here. How do you know that?
2: <laughs> Sandy, can you can you even imagine him in prison? You've known him for how long now?
1: 20 years.
3: 20, 18 years? 18,
1: 20 years? Yeah. No, I can imagine Michael in prison, but I imagine Michael rallying everybody for recovery, not, not a trying to find a way to stay out of trouble.
3: Well, Sam, you're right. That was, that was the last time I went to prison. I did that, but prior to that, I just got s- just sucked up into the the ritual of being around the people that you know I didn't need to be around because that was the lifestyle I was still in.
1: So, Michael, how many years ago was it that you did your last bit?
3: Um, I was uh, arrested in ni- 1989, May 28th. It's uh, my clean date. Uh, I'm a veteran. How about that Memorial Day weekend? <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, thank you for your service
3: thank you uh and so uh you know i don't know if the patriotism in me you know made me believe that i had more to offer in life but you know you get to that point where you get that clarity of moment and uh at 34 years old I'm, i was only on the streets for two months from a prior 18 month sentence so i'm like you know i'm feeling it and uh you know i i i realized that um I wanted some change, I didn't know how to make it. I didn't know if it was gonna work for me. And it was a moment in me that I probably didn't want it to work. I, I still felt the need to do some more research. But I, you know, I, found, I found hope in the 12-step fellowship in prison for the first time. And that was my introduction to recovery. I, all the other times I went to jail, I, just, I went and I just did the time. But this time I, I really wanted to make change and it became evident that you know, change was possible if I just put you know, my mind to it. So you know, that's where it started, May 20th, 1989.
2: Where were you living at the time?
3: Oh, everywhere, you know. You know, how, you know that song, Papa was a Rolling Stone? Yeah. <laughs> where everything is at.
2: <laughs> I seem to remember something about abandoned cars or behind oh, a shelter was, was or whatever.
3: You know. I did some geographics, man, the beach. Uh, Venice Beach is beautiful in the morning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's tranquil at night yeah, uh, um. the sun going down in the water mm-hmm. uh but anywhere i could lay my hat you know like phil said you know I, I found anywhere you know i behind train stations uh you know uh washing dryers uh you know wash houses uh you know just behind people homes uh pulled car doors open till they one came open uh I slept in the shelters. I did that, you know, even the geographics when I went from Texas to Florida to, you know, California, uh, New York, abandoned buildings. Um, There was times when I, you know, would hang out with people and and ask could I sleep in their homes and they let me stay there for two days till I, you know, had to leave. But, you know, I always found myself back to my mom's house from time to time. Uh, And I remember in 80... 79, um, I came to Harford. I actually was employable at the time, and I got a job at the Harford doing that entry. <laughs> I was doing that entry at the Harford back in 1979. I'll never forget. Gave me a good salary, and um, I just messed that all up. You know, <laughs> I could get jobs, but I couldn't keep them. Uh, you know, 96, uh, I went to, um, no, 86. 86, I went to California. Uh, worked at, uh, I was in uh, L.A. Worked at a, uh, a Fortune 500 as a accounting clerk because I had a good background in accounting, accounts receivable clerk, and I, um, you know, I remember eighteen thousand. They was paying me eighteen thousand a year, right, right, and, and, and it was right down the street from uh, it was on Wilshire Boulevard, right down the street from Westwood, which is the UCLA campus. So it was a nightlife there. I was young. Uh, you know, I was fashionable, so I would dress and, you know, and all of a sudden, um, at the time I had stopped using and, uh, then I ran into these two twins, these, tw- these twins and, uh, we having a good time and they, they invite invited me back to their home and they started smoking crack and, uh, there was the job and <laughs> the apartment, everything else, the car. and next thing you know, in about three months, I'm sleeping on the beach in, in Venice beach three months w- wiped out my whole bank account everything so that's the turmoil of uh you know the fall back fallout of um using and you know ways and means you know i was psh, christ i was uh i was like hiding because i was i remember uh taking from the job taking from people homes and uh i became a uh menace yeah really
1: Michael, when did you come across the fact that what you had might be a brain disease and not, not a moral failure?
3: It never, it never came. I, you know, I'm going to be honest. I think uh, when I got that clarity of moment, um, it, I didn't think of it as a moral deficiency. I just thought that um, I just need to change my, my way of living and uh because i had never been in formal treatment i didn't know anything about brain chemistry and not none of that so you know i just felt the need to like see if i could change the environment that i was in and the things i was doing in that environment so it was the 12-step fellowship that you know and i only went you know why i went to 12-step fellowships in prison to get out the cell you know and 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 have movement because i was in uh i was in the cheer, tears in cheshire and uh it's 24, it's 23 hour lockdown. So, you know, in the evening you have option to stay in your cell or go to a 12 step fellowship meeting. And so, and the 12 step fellowship meeting was down in the dormitories, which you had to go through into the dorms and you pass the kitchen where I had some friends, I can get a couple of sandwiches and, (laughs) you know what I mean? There's a couple of cigarettes and some Lucy's, you know, and go back to my cell. But, uh, I heard, my story. I heard a piece of my story and there's one guy came in and almost told my whole story and, and Sandy that's, that's when the light bulb came on so you know it wasn't the brain chemistry it was about really realizing that I had to make some change and uh, I had to do it in prison if I could do it in prison I could do it outside
2: why do you think you started using I mean what was life like growing up for you what led to your addiction
3: well, you know, life was you know as a kid, I was I was a mischief. I, I was you know, you know, like a little curious, but I I, I was raised well. You know, my wife, my my mother, uh, she she was a, a single parent, eight children. You know, I, my dad uh, was put out the house when I was like six, seven. Uh, my oldest brother is seventy three. Uh, the youngest is uh, sixty. So between sixty and seventy three, you got eight kids. So back then, that was like you know newborn at 13 years old so my mom had a lot to work with uh, but I, I grew up I grew up you know respectful discipline you know um, I think um, in 63 in there was the integration of public schools so I went out to a uh, predominantly white school in Row 8 in Connecticut uh, by the sixth grade I was only black in the sixth grade so I kind of like just listened to the teacher I didn't like really play you know behind the teacher's back much um and then by the time I got to high school, I realized I was in uh, advanced classes than my friends from home, you know, because, you know, I was taking algebra one, they were taking general math one and two, and I took geometry and trigonometry in 11th grade, and they're just getting to algebra or, you know, whatever, but, um, you know, I, I, I realized that um, I, I had enough of understanding the environment I lived in, which was a low-income housing project, and I realized by the time I got into high school that there was some things that I just was uncomfortable doing, you know. Um, so, so I I was a, a late bloomer when it came to smoking the marijuana and and lying and cheating, you know what I mean? I, you know, but it was because I was around that 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 type of peer pressure that pushed me to want to drink or, or sneak a uh, smoke a weed or you know uh, take some still let's go steal some apples off this crab tree you know tree or something you know uh, but 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 left that to my own devices I wouldn't have done, done that um, so I, I think it was a combination of the environment the peer pressure and uh, you know the, the little bit of curiosity yeah
1: one of the things I was interested in Michael is all the bids that you did related to your use and you know my knowledge of you over the last you know couple decades is being using your voice today for recovery and we're starting to see changes in our state where um, people that are arrested are now being directed into a pathway of recovery instead of incarceration and I just wonder what your thoughts are are you seeing change are you seeing momentum
3: uh, thanks, Danny. You know, I believe because of the uh, inducted, being inducted into the Hall of Change, which it was a recognition of the work that people can do coming out of prison and supporting those that are returning. Over the years, I've, I've been, you know, and thanks for CCAR and having that platform to do that work has, has really motivated me to believe that, you know, some people are listening uh, there's more supports for reentry now than ever before uh, jail diversion is is, is, is happening. Uh, but I, I think there could be a lot more done. I think um, based on what I've seen over the last twenty years, um, it's more of a need now where they have Medicaid system treatment in prison. That, you know, I, you know, in recovery coaching, look at what CCAR has really made uh, a phenomenal move to get coaches the prison. I think, with the state recognizing the value of putting money into reentry will help reduce the recidivism. And I I do honestly believe that if they start looking at more of the employment side of getting people employed, uh, then people will have a a strong foundation to not need to go back. So, I mean, you know, people could say, oh, you can always do more, um, which they can. I think they've come a long way, and I, I do believe that they'll start looking at more options in how to divert people from prison, even from the front end. You know, I was talking to uh, a couple people about how, you know, with people of color, how difficult that is uh, from the front end being directed to diversionary programs as opposed to uh, being sentenced or you know having uh, you know disproportionate uh, uh, disabilities with being able to pay bond or a, a lawyer or, and how that works against their favor. Um, I'd love to see coaches in the, in the criminal justice system up front in the courts. Uh, I, think, I think we have a way of realizing that uh, the courts can make a difference in the sentencing uh, based on having coaches and another diversion from having people going to prison because they have a substance use Why would you not want to help people with their substance use disorder instead of putting them in prison? Because when they come out, they're gonna come out the same way, pretty much.
2: You talk a lot about um, being in prison and affecting people of color in a disproportionate way. Um, why are our prisons filled with people of color? We know that. In a disproportionate amount compared to the rest of the population, and seventy to eighty percent of the people there are there because of an alcohol or drug-related offense. Tie those two into in for us, and let our audience know what who's in
3: prison and why. Thanks, Phil. And uh, yeah, you hit you hit it on the head with those uh, two remarks. Um, as I look back, as we can look back. Uh, at law enforcement, inner city, and community policing. A lot of this is done in communities where it's saturated with drug activity in the black communities. And so with that said, um, there's an emphasis to place a need to be there than anywhere else. Now I'm not saying there's corners in suburban air America, but <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I know there's cake parties here and there and everywhere, but it just seems that the nature of law enforcement in the inner city is focused on inner city. And that's twenty four seven. I mean I don't know, I, I don't live in suburban America, so I don't know if they're patrolling suburban areas like they are in, in a city where the, the you projects. Know, you I mean, know the answer well, to that. Well, I, you <laughs> know, I'm, not, I'm not saying. But I know when I lived in the projects, the police came around every 20, 30 minutes, right?
2: Not, we see them every <laughs> 20 or 30 months right, in right. my neighborhood.
3: <laughs> Only <laughs> so, if there's a
1: medical emergency. Yeah,
3: right. And uh, so, so I don't know um, if it's a, you know, you know, there's codes in the law enforcement of where they're supposed to be, you know, when you're patrolling. But I, I do know that um, there's an emphasis on black America being focused on when it comes to uh, crime crime uh, you know and and, and, and really the, the signature is uh, as you can see now um, it's more it's more common for black people to be pulled over uh, you know where, where, there, there's a lot of things where just being black uh, makes you suspect. You know, so 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 I think that that role of the law enforcement is supposed to be protect, serve, and defend, it's not being lived up to its expectation of what we want. And I think what's happening is more people are having to deal with the bad side of law enforcement than than, than, than what they're supposed to be.
1: So Michael, even talking about it with us today, you you talk about this situation with humbleness and grace and without anger and how do you what is it that allows you over probably more than the 18 years I've known you but to be able to work against these disadvantages and use your voice and and stay in a place of peace where you can really make a difference I I don't hear the anger that I hear in a lot of voices today What's that difference for you? Uh,
3: I, I think it can be attributed to my spiritual growth from understanding, you know, uh, who I am, what I represent, what I look forward to supporting, and how I go about it. I, th- you know, I've gotten to a point where, you know, I've become more uh, in touch with God. Uh, to To recognize the value of having some spiritual principles that has given me some peace of mind, um, and I do know that of all the things that I've done, I've I've done it in the name of the Lord. I've done it because I share how I don't I don't do this for accolades and pats on the back. I I I, I when I first started advocating, I did out of the passion of want to help people. You know, back in ninety-six when I became chairperson of Friends of Recovery in Norwalk. And 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 then when I got to CCAR, I got a bigger platform because so I had a bigger voice that I could carry. Um and so I think it comes to when you start recognizing the value of being able to put a voice in places where recovery is not being talked about or shared and being humble is to like let people know that um you bring value but also you have this 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 like real desire this want to like make people recognize how you can be a beacon of hope for others and so it's really been a reward being part of ccar to be able to have that and even now as director of recovery advocacy i just it's, it's elevated me to a place where now i just my face and my voice is the healing power of recovery it's it's like i was uh speaking at the uh, hall of change uh, inductee ceremony sharing how god has a way of placing us in a calling you know, Phil is a great visionary. It didn't. You know, he was a golf pro, but now he's a he's a recovery <laughs> advocate visionary because
1: he, he couldn't envision where the ball was going anymore. He had yeah. to move it to somewhere else. But
2: he was so he's speaking as an outstanding golf caddy, which is even kind of more remarkable <laughs> well, <laughs> at one time.
3: <laughs> well, I could read putts pretty well, <laughs> but it, but it all kept, it, it, it all comes down to. Uh, you know, like you said, the humility of one's uh, willingness to to do what we do, and for no return, for, for looking for nothing in return. So you are
2: pretty peaceful, and I, you've uh, in our time together that uh, you've gone through a lot of trials. I've seen many different sorts, but I'm going to ask you a different question that you might not even expect what really irritates you today? What gets under your skin? What just like, when it comes to big issues or anything, what what does stir you up a little bit, get you angry?
3: Um, Good question, Phil. Uh, I'd have to dig down and and say, um, being an advocate I am, uh, sharing a passion of, an issue or concern i have that people will not address i think that's it i think what it does is it makes me want to fight harder and that's where the the the, the 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 fierce comes out
2: uh what's the issue that people want to address
3: helping the recovering community or helping people that are uh you know homeless or helping people that are less fortunate or helping helping Realizing the fact that uh, there's people that have substance use disorder that's going into prison, why does it have to be 80% when you should be able to recognize that these people need treatment? Why you can't bring so, so now you see the fierceness in me? No, Cause... I'm starting to, but I want to bring more
2: of it out. <laughs> run, run, but, run, hey, run. no, but I'm just going to say because there's no reason for the prison industry to want people to get well. Because who's going to feed their their system?
3: It's not the prison industry that needs to be fed. It's the people of the state of Connecticut that needs to be assured that these people are not right. criminals anymore. Well, that follow they can
2: the dollars. Fed. There's big dollars in prisons, But Michael. they can.
3: But you can turn people's life around with just a few dollars. You know how much it costs. Well, they don't have
2: any interest in turning people's lives around. Oh, so
3: they'd rather spend all this money to imprison someone for a year than just to help them. That's humane. That's injustice. Well, I agree. I, you know... Here, now you got me going. <laughs> 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 Let me sit up in my chair. Little bit. <laughs> yeah, all right. You sit up in your chair. You know, I, I don't want to play the, the, the race card. But I have to share how important it is to recognize, like Phil said, 80% of the people in prison have a substance use disorder or some type of issue with alcoholism. <clears throat> but now, more so it's the black community that's really facing this diversity because now it seems that it's a, uh, a way of putting people of color in prison like slavery. So I'm gonna go way back to the fact that this is a still a mindset, that people still can't understand why it's important to recognize the equity and diversity of what America stands for because now, we're disproportionately affected that people of color will still have to deal with this system that places them in prison based on the color. Based on their color. And and so now more so I, I think that we we need to look at why this is still happening. Even after George Floyd or Breonna Taylor, how is it that America still doesn't see the value of wanting to help people get the help they need, instead of put in prison. I don't know. You know what
2: I heard? I was watching uh, the NBA on TNT last night, and uh, Kenny the Jet Smith was talking about oh, yeah. this issue, and he talked about there were three levels, and I don't know what the right term of, but it used the term black. There was uh, black skin, black culture, and black consciousness. And he was talking about this white woman who said that she can't understand what it is to have black skin, right, like Mm -hmm. me. I can't understand that. I don't live in the black culture, Culture. so I don't know what it's like to be a part of that, but I could, and I think I've really started to make progress and have a much better understanding of black consciousness, thanks to working closely and everything we shared over two decades, working with Art Woodard and all the people of color that we have here to listen and to start to get that idea of the consciousness of what it is to be black in America. Mm. And I don't know how many times I've talked about, you know, I don't worry about getting pulled over because of the color of my skin. I don't, get wor- I don't worry about my white children getting pulled over and maybe shot. But you do. Mm-hmm. And you get pulled over all the time, and that's not the only thing different that you can associate associate that with is what? Older skin, absolutely. There's no other reason because mm-hmm. you're a lot better looking than I, I am too. I agree. <laughs> 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 oh wait, wait, wait a minute. What was that? Uh-oh.
3: Well, you know, you know, and, and to think about it, you know, it, you're right. It, it makes I'm 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 so weird that it's just common for me now. To, like, recognize that somebody's watching me in the stores. Yeah. Or, you know, having me show my ID for a credit card still. Two forms, right? Two, for- two ID. Yeah, mm-hmm. for a credit card. Yeah, for, to, 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 to use the credit card. Yeah,
2: it's incredible.
3: You know, but, like, you, you went there when uh, having to, you know, talk to our kids about how to... Behave if they're ever interacting with a police officer. Mm-hmm. Be, I t- tell them, I told Randall, and be kind, listen to what, they, do what they say, l- don't get loud. We can work this out later. Mm-hmm. I just need you to get home. Mm-hmm.
2: And see, that's all. That that just that's all breaks my heart. It it, it really you makes have to it te- teach your kids that you just want them that's, to come that's home. All.
3: I don't want you to, 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 to aggravate. I don't want you to raise. I don't want you to say anything that's demeaning. I want you to shake your head yes. I want you to be polite. Don't say nothing if you don't need to. Let them do what they need to do. If they want to push you in the car or whatever, just wait until we can get lawyer representation if necessary. Mm-hmm. But don't provoke them. I just want to see you get home. That's all. That's all.
1: And Michael, you're a grandfather raising, raising a little oh, one. Oh man, a little, <laughs> he's a little, raising me. <laughs> a, a little black man, and and this hasn't really changed that mm-hmm. that message from your older kids to to this little one.
3: It still won't change. I think you're right, Sandy. A lot of uh, parents uh, in the communities, black communities, are really starting to become more vocal with that uh, because it's something that needs to be done uh based on what's the environment like now uh when i was growing up it wasn't all that much because it wasn't that it wasn't that prevalent but now it's it's really become an issue where you know we have to teach our children uh it's important
2: so you you don't think it will? You think it's worse than it was when you were growing up? Or I think do you it's think, much worse. Or do I you do. think that just people are more aware of it because of all the video cameras and well, the photos true, and the and uh, everywhere you go, there's somebody's recording. So maybe we're just catching more of it. I don't, I know, but I don't know. I don't know, yeah, it's a good question. But you didn't experience it as much, a lot of that. right? So I you're speaking personally. My personally, I didn't experience I, that
3: Yeah. Much. Oh, if I did, I was naive to it. Right. You know.
1: Do you think it's also that maybe you were more obedient than the culture tells us today because probably. we recognize probably. And I, the injustice. You know, I, and
3: I was raised in a good, you know, raising family, so I, you know, uh, I had principles. I valued, you know, things that, you know, meant to me, mm-hmm. and so I probably, yeah.
2: So, so let's shift a little bit because we're stirring the pot, and uh, I'd love to hear about, um, you know, we talk a lot about maintaining and sustaining recovery. Mm-hmm. And how, do you, how would you describe your, your personal tapestry of recovery? What's in that tapestry, and how do you maintain your recovery today? And you have for more than 30 years, right? So how do you do that?
3: Uh, well, it, it really comes down to you know, uh, how you're living. And, how uh, you living? How that you
2: living? Sounds like a group you might have run somewhere
3: one time. No, that, that's a, that's old street saying. You know, when yeah. uh, someone walks up, to you how you living? Yeah,
2: but then you have a Bridgeport group you started with that. That was called the How You Living group.
3: How you living? Yeah, yeah. It, it, was a, it was a support group we named How You Living, and people came in, and the topic of discussion was how you living. And if you kind of divert from how you really living, people kind of like pull you up and say, uh, are you sure?" So it was really a good topic, but um, I, I think what's been important to me is how I practice spiritual principles uh, in my life, how I uh, become more uh, understanding what God's will is and in, in, in what I do, um, how I take that uh, you know, through scriptures that I live by, and I think one of the things that really has pushed me to become more spiritual is reading the bible uh you know I still go to 12-step fellowship meetings but reading the bible has given me more of that peace and understanding uh and 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 really you know when when you think about it you know my sponsor he said Mike if you if you keep one hand in God's hand and one hand reaching out to help someone you won't have a hand to pick that crack pipe up. That's profound. (laughs) Very profound. But but what it did was it allowed me to realize the value of having God work through me for people. And I think that's where, you know, my recovery really has made a difference is that I'm being used by God in everything I do. Talk to me
2: about... um your role in I know you've been very active in twelve step fellowships, narcotics anonymous particularly, but talk to me about how church has influenced you and in your role in church. Oh Jesus. Yeah, that <laughs> one. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that one. Oh exactly. My, my <laughs> <God>.
3: <laughs> oh well, um, you know, that that has brought me to a a a level of spirituality that I couldn't I cannot even uh, imagine where I would have been at. If I thought about it 30 years ago. So, I, you know, um, I've been a deacon of uh, a Baptist church for 12 years. And through the growth of uh, understanding God's word um, and praying um, and listening to music that is inspiring. And singing And singing it. Yeah, you and gonna singing sing for it. us? You got a song in you today? <laughs> and singing it. I don't know. We're always got a song. Just like always got a scripture, always got a prayer. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's done is um, it, it's just given me a desire to want to do more of what God's will is once again. And I think that's really where um, the essence of my uh, spirit evolves around um walking in the spirit of Christ, but understanding how to live by his will and his word. And I don't I don't think that it gives me nothing more than just a passion to know that I can be, in God's eyesight, the best that I can be. So and it started early on in recovery, even before I got saved, it was like um my sponsor would say, you know, uh, you when you when you when you're walking around, God's watching you. He's right there, you know. So the third step was that he said, you know, you know how you take your will in your life. Turn, you know, he says, act like God is right there with you when you're getting on the bus, when you're you're going to work, you know, and you're going to the bathroom and praying. He's right there. So whenever you do something, you know, you ask him, God, is this, do I need to do this? And, and really, it kind of worked in my favor that, you know, all of a sudden, I'm sitting here saying, wow, I got God with me all the time. And so it's really, up until now, became a passion to, like, really want more of what God has to offer for me. And I think that's where it's at with me saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm living the best, happiest times of my life. I am. I, I truly am. am. Um, like I said I never had it so good cuz I had it so bad for a long time
1: So Michael, I had the pleasure of being at uh, your wedding when you married Annie. I don't know how long ago that was now. That was 16 years. Good good. That was quick. <laughs> that was excellent. I should be a-
3: celebrated 2 weeks ago.
1: That's great. So Annie and I have spent many a time sitting at a banquet table together Absolutely. watching you receive an honor um, because you have been acknowledged, not looking for the acknowledgement, you have been acknowledged many, many times for your efforts and for reaching the handout to others that you described. And so I just wonder, with all of your outward activities of serving your communities in all different forms, what is that like in your relationship and your marriage, and how do you sustain that? Meeting your own needs for your own recovery, serving the recovery community and the faith community, and then you know you go home every night to Annie
3: my family uh, God first family, and uh, then everything else and i and, and, and so early on you know when I first started um, working with C-CAR, Annie came into my life in 2000, actually when I was hired, Annie came in my life. And so that was a really uh, challenging time for C-CAR to develop and uh, organize, mobilize. Uh, so I was doing a lot of work, you know, after hours. And, and I would tell my wife, she was home alone, you know, because the children weren't here just yet. And so I would just tell her, look, this is what God's plan is. You know, I was starting to become more understanding of what God's plan was. And I said, look, just know that I'm out there doing what God wants of me. I'll be home soon. So sometime, and the late Mickey Parker, he would say, you know, I'll be be a little late. I got to take somebody to detox. But it was because of the passion. And so over the years, uh, it's really made a difference with her understanding my role as an advocate, as a person that works in the recovery community field of supporting people's recovery and, and doing whatever I can. Now there's a limit, you know, there's a limit, uh, but um, it's a balance between you know my job, my church, my God, and my family. Uh, but we always take family time. So Wednesday nights is family time, you know, and it's always been. Um, you know I take my wife away like you and Sandy Phil goes uh, you know you, you, we have to spend time with uh, our significant other because that's that's most important uh, and it's kind of led me to wanting to retire based on the fact that you know I, I want to spend the rest of what God has left for me with her uh, and enjoy the rest of uh, this life so I think my wife um, really values me and she understands who I am and um I I just want to be able to give her what what she deserves the rest of me yeah
1: that's beautiful
2: so you are about to retire if everything I, works <laughs> I can't talk you out of this one I I've tried a few times but yeah. uh, I understand and uh you know how much I love you and uh we'll miss you
3: same here Phil I you know when you called me back in 2009 uh Mm-hmm. It, it was a it was it was a decision that I I felt um, I could make because of who you were, and because you had the need to want me back. Uh, it, it was an easier decision because I knew what I was coming back to. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that. Well,
2: you, you've helped yeah. grow this organization to places neither one of us would have believed many oh, years geez. ago. So. Um, As you walk off, you know, we could go over all your history with CCAR, but we're going to cover that in some legacy videos and some other interviews. But uh, I'm more curious, you know, getting into your heart and soul, um, what is it you want to leave behind? What is it you want people to know that are involved with CCAR? What is it you, what is the message you want to give? Hmm.
3: I haven't thought about that. Well, uh, that's why I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> well, so... Uh,
2: because you are going to leave something behind. I already know what a lot of that is, but I want to hear it from
3: you. Well, I, you know, f- from the recovery community centers that I managed uh, for some time, uh, the communities I worked in, especially in the southwestern part of the state of Connecticut, where I'm well-known, um, I'm, pr- I'm I'm hopeful that people will, when they hear the name Michael Askew, you, know that it was somebody that was willing to stick their neck out. You know, like the giraffe. I, I even was got a of That, that
2: like, giraffe. I award. That was got, the early that was person. This, that yeah. was
3: that like way back in the 2001 <laughs> yeah. or two. I got an award. It was the <laughs> giraffe award, because for sticking my neck out. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Crazy, wasn't it? So, well, he, um, that's
2: funny because Sandy, what? what tell them about your giraffe thing now. Yeah,
1: yeah after we visited Kenya, uh, definitely giraffe is my favorite animal. Don't and how tall are you, Michael? Because it's not really that that far. You had to stick it. <laughs> like, you're <laughs> yeah. a tall man. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. I'm only 6'2". <laughs> oh, Phil's taller than me. But yeah, uh, um, wow. Yeah, this this is a, uh, you know. My legacy, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that uh, Grady, uh, Charles Grady had the vision to uh, bring the Hall of Change to Connecticut and not being inducted into the hall. Um, but I think with CCAR, because this is where my legacy is, um, that not only the staff, but also the recovery community will be inspired to do some of the things that I did with uh, prison reentry with you know recovery coaching with s- support groups to you know bring a, bring a bring a presence to many community uh, tables of discussion that they can bring the the face of recovery to those places that uh, we started back in 2000 and being a part of that you know, policy change and um, hopeful people that come behind me will recognize their value when they share the face and voice of recovery in their communities, and uh, the state level, at the legislative office building. Um, but I'm hopeful that CCAR will grow to become more of an advocacy organization because this is where I wanna leave the legacy that I started. Just like when I started the Recovery Community Center back in 2006 in Bridgeport, and I left a year later, it's like a baby. And I, and I came back because my baby needed nurturing. It did. <laughs> so when I leave this, I'm, I, I'm hopeful I don't have to come back, but I'm hopeful I can leave it with someone that can nurture it and love it like I did, and with passion. Yeah. So that's what I hope I leave is a legacy that people can bring a uh, a voice and face uh, to the platforms that we I've I've kind of created, and and allow that uh, to resonate in the hearts of people that need to know more about what the recovery community is about.
2: You've also uh, coached and and or sponsored many people through their recovery process. Anything you would say to people new in recovery? Um,
3: yeah, it, it, it really has. It really has been a joy to watch people grow. Uh, I have a sponsee that, uh, you know, was with me last weekend, uh, just celebrated twenty three years. <laughs> And He's been li- <laughs>
2: around a long time, too. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he came
3: to me from day one, and uh, he was living in uh, an abandoned garage, right, where the door would only open up to so high, and he said, Mike, I would still get under that door. He was a kind of burly guy. <laughs> but, you know, I, I would just say that people that uh, begin this uh, recovery journey uh just know that if you want good direction, follow it from the people that's been where you need to go or want to go um and my sponsor always told me I may know a lot about using, but I don't know anything about you, you know recovery, so i need to yeah, I need to look at what it is I want, how I need to go about it, and how I can get the help to get there and so that's that's what I would share.
2: So, we're about wrapping, about to wrap this up. Can you want to take us out with a song? You got a song? Oh. <laughs> Come on, we got to hear a little uh-huh. bit.
3: Um, here's one that kind of touches me a little bit. Uh, I'll just send one verse of it. Uh, it kind of gives me a, a feeling of freedom from where I came from. But also understanding... Uh, Sometimes we're in places where we could use a little of God's uh, Spirit. When the storm keeps on raging in my life, and sometimes it's hard to tell the night from day. Still, this hope that lies within is disappeared. As I keep my eyes upon the distant shore, I know he leads me safely to that blessed place. He has prepared but if that storm don't cease and if that wind keeps on blowing in my life my soul has been a curse.
0: The Lord. Thank you for listening to Recovery Matters. We hope that you've connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at CCAR.us. Like and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at CCAR4Recovery. And use the hashtag RecoveryFirst to show support for our mission. Fire feeds fire, so if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.